And good morning. Welcome to our Home Improvement Show presented by Linda's Construction. Andy's taking the day off today. Our friend Barry Strands is back with us. Good to see you, Barry. Excellent to see you too, Danny, sir. Life is good? Life is wonderful. I played basketball Wednesday and I was just telling you off air that my legs are like, hey, you have legs. Where'd they go? The weekend warrior stuff. I'm happy to be able to not have reported I died of a heart attack on a basketball court, though. So this is good. But you feel that. You're not used to that Dude, stuff. it is so crazy, this aging thing. What happened? I don't know. I'll let you know when I get there. <laughs> right. I love that about you, too. <laughs> uh, Barry Strands, for those that don't know, this guy's been in the construction business a long time, uh, a, a, a doer, all right? Uh, and you were how old, 12? No, I was I, 15? 15. Yeah, but 1972. 1972 is a long time ago. Yeah, I'm reminded of that on a regular basis. Like, yeah, that's when I started doing stuff. So, But you were the grunt work. I was. The, labor. Yeah. I carried plywood around, and I sloshed tar on foundations and came back, and my mother would look at me like, what is my dad doing to my kid? You but know, you so. got hooked into it, though, didn't you? I actually did. I found to take a pile of lumber, sticks and plywood, and turn it into a place for people to live, yeah. it's a wonderful feeling. And I, I say that a lot about the trades, too, because I find a lot of people today that I meet are finding something to do with their hands because cerebral opportunities just don't seem to have enough tactile, yeah. you know, sensation. Yeah, yeah. And so lots of folks, so whether it's gardening or construction or light hobbies, you know, I, I'll make jewelry in my spare time but, uh, because I just love the idea of doing something myself with my hands. But you also teach. That's another part of your life. Yeah, teaching is, I mean, I'm in the season right now, so I teach once a week uh, on top of my regular job. Teaching which, what and whom? I teach construction classes to contractors, realtors, appraisers, and we talk about building code, building science. We talk about uh, new development of product and technology. We talk about the trades. We, we get into stuff that's very, very practical and some stuff that's very kind of education-based, required by the state of Minnesota for licensure. Mm. So it kind of keeps you on edge, too, doesn't man, it? Man, oh, man, yeah. you find yourself, you know, you got 45, 50 guys in the class, and they're looking at you like, uh, what's the answer to this question? And it's like, I will find that for you and by, over the break time, I'll answer. But mm-hmm. it's good because you're always being sharpened then by people who know stuff, too. And the whole of us is smarter than the individual among us, which is nice. But besides being the teacher, you uh, are still with Kyle Hunt, I believe? Yeah, Kyle Hunt Site Supervision. That's my role. So I am the privilege of actually managing schedule and site work uh, for houses, remodel projects that we do. And we get to do some really fun stuff. I'm privileged to work in an area where most of our customers have the ability to create interesting designs. They can afford to spend money on nice finishes. And then I have to manage quality control. And I mean, we're going through a situation right now where I thought I'd be insulating a house on Tuesday and we don't have our shade pockets figured out because we have recessed shades that will electronically drop down over the windows facing the lake and we need to get sizes and fabrics all figured out before we can insulate so i've pushed that back a couple of days because we've got to get that stuff sorted out still first things first yeah well it's a good problem to have uh i was going to give our uh, phone line and the text line. if you have a home improvement question by all means i have a couple of other questions i want to ask barry uh but you can do your own home improvement questioning 651-989- Nine two two six. If it's easier, send uh, Barry a text eight one eight zero seven eight one eight zero seven. I was looking out the uh, kitchen window this past week, uh, Barry, and uh, was noticing. In fact, I told my son, "Look at that house over there." I don't know who who lives there, but I said, "Look at the icicles yep. hanging. They were huge yep. Yep. on this one side of the house." Yep. Let's talk about uh, well, ice dams and icicles. Particularly problematic this year has been our temperature extreme swings. Yeah. And then volume of snow. 
And when we got hit with these two big snowfalls recently, it's crazy to see with temperatures coming into the 40s during the day, we're getting melt back on those roofs, which is running down underneath the snow cover. And as a result, refreezing on the eve and all night long, we're getting refreezing. So we've got some serious ice dam situations and a lot of icicles. And I I think the important thing to remember as a homeowner is, did, did my house get built wrong? Mm-hmm. Is my builder, a, you know, an idiot? Was there something that they should have done differently? And and what's outside their control? And to me, it's really important for a homeowner to understand, especially based on age of house, the structure of the roof is really in control of what's possible relative to insulation and ventilation. Keep in mind that we're always doing only the very best we can, and that would be to keep the roof surface temperature, our shingles, typically asphalt, but it could be steel or something else, at the same temperature as the outside air. Now, there are some factors with that, because as soon as sunlight hits that surface, we are no longer talking about merely an air temperature. We're talking about what solar gain is doing to raise temperatures of a surface material. It's going to absorb heat, and it's going to raise temperature. Well, there's nothing that a builder can do about sunlight hitting a roof. Can't solve that, can't fix that. So once that begins to happen, if you've got the ridge of the roof exposed, that top foot or two feet, suddenly dark shingles are going to be picking up solar radiation. They're going to get extra hot. Now any snow that's close to that is going to melt down through no heat loss from the house. It has nothing to do with insulation. It has nothing to do with ventilation. And sometimes even in brand new houses, we see icicles and people are like, isn't this a new house? Didn't you insulate the code? How come I have icicles? There shouldn't be ice dams. Well, that's just a fallacy. We have to come to understand that there are some things that are going to happen environmentally that have nothing to do with the way the house was built. Yeah, because like you said earlier, it, it's, it's, some of this is out of our control. Out and of our we're going to get freeze and thaw. Absolutely. And that's something really important to know. And, of course, especially at where two roof planes intersect. Now, what's the structural term for where two roof planes intersect? What would you call that? you know the, ner- the term? The valley. Oh, right? oh, oh, okay. Right? You know that word, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. at the place where those two roof planes come together, I've got snow melt from two surfaces coming together at an intersecting corner, which means I'm doubling the amount of water there and therefore the amount of water that's going to refreeze. So typically those intersecting planes, those valleys, are the place where we're looking at ice dams and they're far more problematic. Now, obviously, we have techniques to get snow off the roof, but when the problem is related Instead, to heat loss from a house, we need to understand that the house needs to be adjusted in order to do the very best job the home can do to solve ice dam problems that are related to heat loss in the home. Okay, so I'm in a group of contractors yesterday. Mm -hmm. I'm doing some code class questions, uh, our code questions in class. And I asked the question, before you add insulation to an attic, what does the building code say is required? And I got this kind of look like, hmm... We've probably been told this, but an, an active contractor is doing remodeling. I only had one guy who knew the answer. And, and the answer is this. We're required to seal bypasses. Now, that's the, a building code word that just means places inside the home where air can leak up into the attic space. Now, when that air leaks up, it carries the heat of the home into it. And now the attic gets warm from heat loss. And when that happens, we increase the melting of snow on the roof surface. So that's something we can control and need to control. And that's why that's, the building code has been written that way. We don't want to just throw more fiberglass or more cellulose insulation over the top of what's already there. If we have air leakage coming into the attic space, that's a problem we need to solve. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine this a couple of months ago who had uh, their home inspected or hired an inspector yes, sure. coming mm-hmm. through. And 
uh, I said to him, uh, what did the inspector say about uh, insulation and ventilation? And this inspector told him, well, we don't really care too much about ventilation. I thought, wow. that's not what you guys have told me. No, absolutely not. There, and it's interesting because when we don't understand the building science behind the code, we then oftentimes make decisions that don't reflect what works in houses. Uh, you know, basement, uh, we've been talking about basements in our classes this season and fascinating to see where moisture flow takes place, where vapor pressures are taking place, where air losses are taking place, what insulation does and doesn't work, how moisture affects the framing around the foundation. It doesn't matter where in the house it is, physics are having their play. And to, it's basically high school science. But if we don't understand that, we end up with trouble. Now, in an attic space, obviously, the goal is to get air to blow across the top of the insulation without displacing the insulation in the okay. attic. Now, if I have fiberglass bat insulation, the blankets that we see, pink, right. yellow, whatever the color is, I'm not going to displace that with air movement. But if I've got blown in fiberglass or blown in cellulose insulation, I've got air coming in from an overhang, an eave, we call them soffit vents. When air blows across that surface, if we don't protect that insulation, it'll just blow right out of that space, and we're now losing insulation over the exterior wall of the house. And now we have a high heat transmission location, and we'll end up seeing spots of melting that are right above the outside wall line of the building. And it's really classic to see in a lot of 1950s homes. And if you see two inches of snow on the roof, and then just wait 24 hours and see if you can find melt patterns that run parallel to the eave about two feet up that roof edge. Hmm. And you'll notice this is a heat loss location right above the exterior wall. We have a lack of insulation there. The fun part about roofs is they tell the whole story of what's going on in the, of the heat loss in the home. If you've got a skylight and there's melting around that, well, you can tell we have inadequate insulation taking place around the skylight chase. If we've got a bath fan that wasn't properly vented around that vent location to the roof, I've got melt on the roof itself. Clearly something's wrong with the heat loss around my bath fan exhaust pipe. It's a wonderful way to kind of play uh, Sherlock Holmes. I was going to say detective. Yeah, Yeah, on your own roof surface and see what's going on. All right. Barry Strands, hang on. We're going to take a bit of a break here. If you have a home improvement question for Barry, call it in at 651-989-9226 or text it in. That number is 81807. Back with more Home Improvement Show with 37 degrees here on CCO. And good morning. Welcome back to CCO's Home Improvement Show presented every week by our friends at Lindus Construction, L-I-N-D-U-S. Andy Lindus is uh, taking the day off today. Our friend Barry Strads is uh, back with us, helping you out either by phone or by text, 651-989-9226. There's a line open if you want to use it or send a text. we got a bunch of those too, Barry, uh, 81807. Jerry in St. Paul has been waiting on the line. Jerry, go ahead. Barry's listening. Yes, sir, guys. Uh, I have a 1914 home, has a uh, three-season porch. Uh, I've got aluminum storm windows on it. And I'm getting settling in the winter time to the point where I actually have to slam the porch door in order to close it. And there's gaps in between the, the the windows where you can actually see daylight in the storm windows. So my question is, can I get by if I go under the porch and reinforce it with some, maybe some six-by-six six posts and put them on top of a thick, hefty cement pad rather than drill for footings? Would that be adequate? 
Well, uh, probably not. Bottom line, when we look at movement in the winter condition, we're almost always looking at frost heave, where the footings that are there are not deep enough to get below frost level. And so what happens with those is they're being squeezed up out of the ground and they're pushing up and you're seeing that sh- that shift in the door and that shift in the windows. And then again, when it settles back down in the spring, as temperatures moderate, it goes back where it was. Until we anchor that footing to a stable base in the soil that will not move, we're going to see that seasonal problem. And nothing that we do topically across the surface of the footing is going to solve it because it's the footing itself that's moving. Now, if you could detach the structure from moving soils so that it doesn't uh, has no attachment to the footing, you could solve the problem. But that would be a code violation. If it's attached to the house, you must have footings under the structure. Hmm. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Texture says this, Barry, the kitchen floor has a click and snap laminate limit. One plank in the middle has a bad scratch. Is there any easy way to replace or repair just that one plank? That's a great question. And the problem with answering it is it's brand specific to how that click and snap system is done. So if I give you uh, information about one brand, it might not be the one that you've got. But yes, that system is designed to be unsnapped. Now, it's a challenge to do so. And some manufacturers have a little tool to help you in the process. But you have to actually have to get to that joint location. Typically, you're breaking the damage piece, you're actually cutting into that or creating an, an, an opportunity to lift it, and then another piece can be snapped in place. Sometimes, though, I've seen that you have to unlock the entire edge all the way to the oh, edge of the wow. room to get that to fit correctly. Like you said, depending on the yep. manufacturer. Yeah, it does. 651-989-9226. Text is 81807. Is there, I think uh, the texter heard you talking about the uh, dark roof of the asphalt shingle. Yeah. Is there any product for a roof that would change color depending on the outside temp to protect against overheating or freezing? I've never heard of anything. No, I mean, there are are materials that are designed to paint roof surfaces, but nothing that a manufacturer has supported as acceptable to the warranty of the product. So, yeah, it's a great idea. It's just nothing available now. 81807, if you want to send in your home improvement question by text, here's another one. Water drips uh, deteriorated big spots on the sidewalk. What's the cheapest and easiest way to repair? Uh, That's one. Two, asphalt driveway broken up in several spots. The best solution, easiest and cheapest. Um, (laughs) You know, I get this all the time. What's the best, easiest, and cheapest? Well, it's like you can't. That's a triad that doesn't work. Right. You've got got to figure out whether or not you're willing to jump in. You can get asphalt patching products at big box stores right now, though. Right. And that's the simplest way. Cut out a section of that. Use an asphalt patching uh, product. That's going to be the cheapest and I think best if you're on a budget. Uh, And the first question was concrete. Concrete deterioration can be surface patched now with the binding agent that first goes in. So we've got to get to super clean, super dry, and make sure that that is basically scuffed and scratched so that it can be receiving a new material. Then a bonding agent goes onto that surface, and then a top coat is applied. And that can be then broom finished to look very much. I think you'll still see that it's a repair. If you don't do a colorized or a complete top coat, but it does solve the deterioration and the pitting issue on the surface of the concrete. And you can go online and just check. There's a number of good products out there for that. All right, I tell you what, we have another uh, Larry in Elk River. Hang on, we'll uh, grab your call when we come back after the break. We have another half hour of the show to go. Your home improvement questions answered by Barry Strands. 
filling in for Andy Lindis today. 651-989-9226. Text is 81807. We'll line up more calls and more questions after the break. 37 degrees. We'll have a look at that forecast coming up. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And good morning. Welcome back to this portion of CCO's Home Improvement Show presented every Saturday by our friends at Linda's Construction. You want to get in touch with those guys? 1-800-LEAF-CARD is the easiest number to remember. Barry Strand's filling in for Andy today. And, uh, Barry, we have texters. Great. We have callers like Larry in Elk River. Larry, go ahead. Barry's listening. Okay. I have new construction, slab-on grade, and I'd like to know what materials should I put on the floor that's hydronically heated. Uh, so slab on grade, new construction. What, well, what do you want? I mean, no, don't, don't do carpet. I don't I'm, think, but you know, no, I'm planning that, on staining and sealing it. Oh, well there, I mean, have you looked at epoxy metallic finishes? If you, what type of epoxy would you use? Well, me, metallic, yeah, there's a number that. of them out there, but metallic epoxies, if you want to just do something, it, they're, they're really cool and they can be finished and you could put a throw rug on them if you want, but they create these incredibly cool designs that uh, the metallic flakes inside the epoxy actually mold and move around and create a swirled finish that looks like almost like an abstract art painting. Very, very cool finish. That's one to consider. But it's more expensive than a stained concrete. If you wanted to stain concrete, then finish with a polyurethane sealer. That'll give you a great life, too, as long as there's a little bit of um, texture to the concrete so that you've got some slip resistance. You have to be very, very careful with your coating so that you don't end up having something that's really slippery when people are wandering about. I really do think it's a wash based on your aesthetic interests. Um, c- concrete World, I want to say ConcreteWorld.com, but I may not be the wrong on the address, but if you search those guys out, tremendous volume of information about finishing concrete and using a textured finish on an existing surface where you've got a great opportunity to minimize your square foot costs and still make a very, very attractive floor. In fact, a lot of folks now are actually doing a an acid wash that's done with a design built into the acid washing with multiple colors and overlayments, and by doing that, they create a work of art on the floor, and it, all it is is stained concrete, which is a really reasonably priced thing to do, especially if you're DIY, doing it all by yourself. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, good luck. Hi, Larry. Thank you. Larry leaves that line open. If you want to phone in your home improvement question, 651-989-9226. Otherwise, uh, send a text like a bunch of folks are doing, 81807. Here's one, Barry. It says, I'm going to re-roof my home. I'm thinking of covering the entire roof with ice and water shield. Is that a good idea, and do I still need felt? Well, if you used ice and water shield, you would not need felt. It would be in lieu of or instead of. The question about using ice and water on the whole surface is, why would you do that? Uh, And the biggest problem is that ice and water has so small a vapor permeance that you can't get migration of water vapor through those materials. Any water that's underneath it, it will be trapped. So now you're really going to emphasize ventilation of your attic space, and that becomes a really critical detail. I don't like that unless... I don't like putting a, an ice and water material underneath shingles unless it's a clay tile or it's a slate that requires a water control membrane beneath the finished surface. As long as the asphalt installation is done correctly, you don't need to do more than tar paper except where code requires to 24 inches inside the exterior wall line of the building. Being involved as you are in a new construction, um, what, is, is foam being used like almost exclusively in, in attics? Well, no, no. I, it's not. And, and the challenge is price point. Uh, we're still spending three times more to foam an attic space than we would to do a blown-in. 
Uh, and the compromise that's coming up for a lot of builders and new houses is they're looking at a flashing of foam, two to three inches in thickness, on the surface of drywall. And then to get to the R49 code required R value, they're blowing over that with fiberglass or cellulose. So it's a combination of two different foams. One creates a vapor retarder and an air barrier. That's the, the spray foam. Mm-hmm. The other one simply creates a thermal um, volume that meets the code requirements that, are under, that we're under today. So most builders are trying to figure out an economical way to get the highest performance. That's the challenge that we're yeah. under right now. But once you put a piece of plastic on the ceiling before your drywall goes in place, you can't use a closed-celled foam on top of plastic. You can't. You can't. So now you're in trouble if you've gone to that design. It has to be determined prior to the installation of drywall. Otherwise, you're going to get a foam that won't bond to plastic. And guys who try to do that make a real mess of the attic space, I would imagine. All right. uh, Text number is 81807. Let's see. Speaking of insulation... Texter said, we just had our wet insulation pulled out. Uh, We had that foil blanket installed seven years ago. They covered some of our vents, causing moisture to soak into the insulation. I don't see a question there. Well, uh, how about a comment? (laughs) Whenever we try to do something that we think is going to improve performance, we have to understand how we're affecting the physics of what's already there. We make mistakes like this all the time. Foil face materials that are not perforated are vapor retarders, and we're putting them over insulation that has a vapor retarder on the other side, on the warm and winter side of the roof, creating a double vapor retarder. Now when condensation occurs in that space, we can't get that stuff to dry out. It wouldn't have been a problem if we hadn't added this new high-tech foil faced material over the top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to save money, and we end up making a mess. Yeah. And, and it's a failure for the people who are selling product to care more about the house's longevity and durability than they do about their sale. And it's a, it's a frustration to me because I see it all the time. People who know about their product but not how their product interacts with the rest of the house's system. But that doesn't help anybody. Got to see the whole picture. Got to see the big picture. All right. Uh, let's go to the phone. Shirley has been waiting to ask you a question. Go ahead, Shirley. Hi, Barry. I have a question about... Whether there is an apprentice program in the construction industry? Sure. Great question. Uh, There is in the union program, but in non-union, what we typically do, and that, by the way, is over 90% of the residential market right now is non-union. So the apprenticeship program is, in fact, finding someone who will take on a newbie, we call them, and let that person learn in the process and get paid doing it. Now, the union offers apprentice programs. Of course, there are also education programs from institutes that are actually teaching construction practice. So there's education schools in the Twin Cities for theirs. There's one over on Highway 55. Its name escapes me right now, where you can get basic information figured out. The challenge is most of those places where people learn how to do it from a classroom setting is it doesn't transfer effectively to the real world on the job sites in residential construction today. I tend to be an advocate for my own experience, which was finding someone who will pay me a small amount of money, minimum wage, to actually be a labor person, and I will learn while I do. And in my mind, that's the best education possible. And by the way, that could even be part-time. Though people take you on part-time. We are looking for labor in this business right oh, now. That's what the I industry to ask you is about. desperate. For labor. That's the word, isn't it? It is really, really challenging times. We cannot find framing carpentry crews. I mean, there's just people are not coming into this business. They want to find some technique. They don't want to use their body to make a living. And I understand that. 
there's a wear on the on the physical, but we have never seen so much cool technology in the field minimizing repetitive uh, 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 damage mm-hmm. to body parts, hands, arms, because we've got so much cool equipment. We're no longer swinging a hammer. That's not what a carpenter does today. Rarely. Now we pull a trigger on a gun yeah. and we fire nails. So it's a different industry than it was 25 years ago, and it's much less of a toll on the body over a well, that, course of a career. And that's important for people to know. But how do we get young people interested in the trades? Well, I, I think that uh, when a person starts working, they begin to have to decide, am I willing to work for a, a paycheck? And I, I feel like this entitlement generation that is my mm-hmm. own children, mm-hmm. they, they kind of learn that someone will take care of them and they don't have to work very hard for it. And I, I think that my generation feels that way about a younger generation. I, I, we, we get kids who come out of the farm communities, and those kids have, have learned since they were young that what it means to put in a day's worth of work. And those are kids who go, man, I can't pay this kid enough. I mean, I can't, he doesn't know anything, but he will work his butt <laughs> yeah. off because yeah. he understands a work ethic. Yeah. And, I, you know, how do you teach a work ethic to a generation? Well, one, we, one person at a time, I think. And we have, we've talked about this before. We have some great uh, technical schools yes, around do. here. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what the with the uh, uh, sign up is for various you know outside of computers yep. or car repair. What about the trades? I wonder how places like Dunwoody do. I haven't heard. Yeah, it's a good question, and I'm not tracking their specific numbers, but you see in kids today so much. Um, I mean, again, I've got 11 children. I think that's a lot of people as a sample, you know, to address. That I have to decide, you know, how am I going to look at my life and what am I? And, and I love giving my kids a baseline in the trades. My oldest daughter now in her early 30s had a house built, and she was on the job site every day talking to the crew. And she's, you know, cute as a button, so they wanted to make sure Miss Emily was happy. At the same time, she also understood things that they needed to do and would just ask good questions to say, hey, have you guys, are you guys going to be doing this? Is this part of the way you do this? And then she'd buzz me with questions to make sure everything they were doing was, was good. And, and I was like, I, I, listen, I'm not going to manage your job from Minnesota. You're in Texas. You left. I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, too, how many uh, high schools, and we've talked about this occasionally, have a shop class. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the numbers. I wish no. I did. Because once... I mean, we're, we're looking at trying to find labor from people who are coming through places that are managing addictions and helping okay. people come out of addiction. Say, oh, yeah. hey, what, you need to learn to do something. How can we develop programs that will help you come into a new way of looking at your own life and give you something that's tactile, something that, with your hands mm-hmm. that you can learn to do, and then develop a whole system now where you begin to see your life through a different lens. And it's exciting for us because we're looking at the possibilities and thinking for the next generation, we're gonna, we just need people. That's good that you mentioned that about the wear and tear on your body, uh, that, that that's changing because of new technology. That's positive. It is positive, yeah. And it's fun. So, All right. Uh, let's see. Texter says, my dad's house, I don't know if you can answer an insurance question, but my dad's house had hail damage, and the insurance company wants to just replace some siding and paint the boards. The problem is the paint won't match. Yeah, the question is the way policies are written – Normally, it's replacement of the damaged materials, and if it were a material where the siding was no longer available, they would be required to purchase the entire siding in the house. Mm. But when it's a painted situation, they're only required to address the damage and typically the side of the house that's been damaged. Now, if every side has been damaged, then I think you can lobby to get them to paint everything. But if you only have it on two sides, they would not have to paint your entire house. They only have to paint the sides that have been damaged. Now, if they're only going to paint 16 boards yeah. and the adjacent boards have 
not been damaged, they're declaring, then I think you can have an effective lobby process there. Now, if a contractor gets involved, they'll go lobby for the homeowner. Mm. So if you can kind of find a painting contractor in an insurance job, they understand all of the ins and outs of the business and what the insurer will and will not pay based on the policy claim. Sure. That's a really smart way to take that. So you've got an advocate working in your court, That's not just idea. the insurance company. I like that. Hang on, Barry. We'll take a little bit of a break here. We have more show to come. If you have any kind of a home improvement question, call it in at 651-989-9226 or send a text. And we'll get back to the text screen in a moment. 81807. Speaking of numbers, it's 37 degrees going for 50 today. Good morning. Welcome back to this portion of our Home Improvement Show presented every Saturday by our good friends at Lindus Construction, L-I-N-D-U-S. Barry Strands filling in for Andy Lindus today. 1-800-LEAF-CARD again if you want to get in touch with those uh, good folks. And uh, let's see, uh, Barry, we have callers, we have texters. Let's see how many folks we can help out yep. before we let you go today. Uh, Tony is calling from Minnetonka. Tony, you're on CCO with Barry. Hi, Barry. Morning, uh, Tony. We're recently moving into a house, and we looked at the pictures, and they had these beautiful wood beams. Sure. Uh, but then when we got to look at it, they did us a favor, and they whitewashed everything. Oh, no. Painted over everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's a nice primer coat everywhere, but we're wondering how can we restore the wood on those beams? We definitely don't want to strip it down and ruin it. But is there, we, we looked at a few solutions like gel and things like that, but I wanted your take. Uh, the question is going to end end up being what was there before? What was the condition? What's the age of the beam? And was there anything on it? Were they stained? Were they finished with a varnish? Were they all natural? It's really tough to answer the question without knowing those things because what you do to anything as a like a chemical stripper is going to impact that. I still think that I lean toward removing paint through chemical strippers rather than doing a sanding. But it depends on what's underneath there. Now, if it's a, a beam, it can be re... Well, I would say it's a stain modeling aging process that can restore the finish. But as long as you don't damage the wood underneath and the chemical stripper, I think would be still my first choice. But, but it makes one of those where I wish I could see it and I give you much better advice if I could look at it, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry about All that. All right, Tony. Thanks for the call. Good luck with yeah, that. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's an issue when you got an old historic beam or a, a re- reclaimed beam that's been painted. And it dresses up the look in the marketplace today in a lot of cases. But if it was something like a cedar that was rough sawn or something like that that was just painted, because then, you know what, I'm replacing them. I'm, yeah. I wouldn't try to strip a cedar beam, especially if it was built up. If it was a solid piece, it's an entirely different issue. Do, do you, uh, in your new construction business, uh, use a lot of reclaimed lumber? I mean, they, a lot of these, this beautiful wood. Yeah, we we, uh, we use a fair amount. It's yeah. hard to say. I mean, they're expensive, obviously, yeah. but we're on one right now where... We've got some 14-foot, 8-by-8, 9-by-9 solid beams that are being uh, harvested, if you will, out of the barns that are being torn down all yeah. over the country. So we've put our order in for what we need, and then they will, we just begin to research yards where people reclaim this material, ship it to us, and we'll install it in the home. Got to be costly, though. Yes, wow. it's expensive. I'm not sure if uh, we can get through this one but or as far as the dollar amount, because in the, in the past few weeks uh, we've talked, I think Andy has mentioned uh, about... Uh, uh, a drain system underneath like your driveway to a beaver trap or something sure. like that. Mm-hmm. What kind of a dollar amount am I roughly looking at, the texter says, to put in a drain system under the driveway so water dripping from the roof does not drip on the driveway and freeze? Um, I think that's... Well, The we did one on a concrete where we came in, created a trough, 
uh, to a gravel pit and then a PVC pipe and then excavated that and pushed it off to the side of the home. And I, I don't get privy to the numbers, but mm. I think we probably spent about $5,000 to do that on a concrete okay. driveway. The challenge is going to be what the existing condition is, and oftentimes there's peripheral costs relative to the condition of the drive next to it. If it's asphalt, it's going to be a little bit less, but concrete is a more expensive product. Did you really mean it when you were talking about jewelry uh, before for keeping your hands busy? And... Do you mean, do I make jewelry? Yes. Yeah. I've got probably 600 pair of earrings sitting on the wall well, in, my, in my little shop right now. Well, a listener obviously heard it. said, Barry, t- tell us more about the jewelry you, uh, you market. I don't uh, market it. You don't market it. Market it. You my, make it. I give it away right <laughs> now. My, it's like I've got thousands of dollars of, of precious, semi-precious stones, beads, glass beads, the metals. Te- texter says, sounds like a fun side project to de-stress from construction. Yeah, it's where fantastic. Do I, where do I start? Well, I know. It's it's really great. I My wife was making a, a necklace for her daughter for a Christmas present, and I said, that looks like fun. Look, It does. It looked like therapy. Yeah, And she said, well, here's the how you take a wire and here's a bunch of beads and stones and make a pattern that you like. And I get all done with this. And I said, what do you think? And she goes, well, this just irritates the heck out of me. I said, what's wrong? She goes, this is better than anything I've ever made. (laughs) And now I have a brain that thinks in terms of patterns and designs and spaces. So I I have a hard time making something that's not symmetrical. I just can't make myself do it. I've learned to, but I've had to train myself to do it. Yeah, I've got a bunch. I sell Christmas presents, and i got eight daughters, for goodness sakes. That's true. You do have. There's always room for jewelry in my house. That's kind of cool. Let's see. Oh, you let us know when you're going to market, okay? Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, people have bought me. Well, I can't have an Etsy shop. You need to be on Etsy. You've got to have something. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't have time to start at that yet. Barry, here's a text here. It says, uh, when doing a tear-off for re-roof, is it necessary to remove the old ice guard or can new ice guard be installed over the old? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and the code addresses that, and the answer is real specific. What does the manufacturer of the new ice guard say relative to overlaying the existing? That will determine whether you can or you can't. I personally don't like to overlay. I would, But you know what? Pulling the old ice guard off, almost always damages the first layer of OSB or plywood so much. No. So I just take, hey, we're just replacing that piece. And then when you replace that piece of plywood or OSB on the eave, you can evaluate all the existing ventilation, insulation over the outside wall. And, you know, a lot of roofers are going to charge you 15 or $20 a sheet to put that new stuff back on. But on a typical 40-foot house, we're not talking about that much extra money. For 1000 bucks, I would do that every single time mm. and then put new ice and water on. It just takes the roofer into carpentry, and most roofers don't want to do the carpentry aspect of that. They'll do the roofing, but they don't want to do the plywood. Gotcha. Is we, you know, we started the show, we were talking about uh, ice dams, icicles, and the texture says, is there anything plus or minus to steel roofs, especially in reference to those problems? Well, great question. The issue with steel is going to be a pitch-related issue because they'll heat up faster than asphalt in most cases because they'll be a darker tone. And as a result, that heat will then create a separation or a slip-slide location of the ice on the roof surface or snow. So you get big dumps of snow. You'll see a lot of metal roofs that have hooks at the ends. Every six or ten inches, you'll see this kind of metal hook or barb that's on the roof surface near the eave edge. It's designed to stop a big snow slide from landing on somebody at an, an inopportune moment. So that's one of the challenges with steel. That's kind of fun. I don't mind that. I think especially if an ugly neighbor came over. Not ugly. I don't mean ugly in the uh, – I mean ugly in terms of tone and nastiness, I guess. And then you hope for the slide to happen and hit them and dump all the snow on them as long as they're not 
permanently injured, they'll just stay away and not borrow your lawn, you, you lawn send, equipment again. You send those emails to Barry. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes I say stuff and I think, I did I just say that out loud? I'm an idiot I am. All right. Uh, that's okay. It's, it's Saturday. <laughs> um, it's yeah, Saturday, and we're real people living that's in the real right. world. Absolutely. Sometimes we say stupid things. Here is, I know we have less than two minutes to go. It's hard to say. How often should I stain my cedar deck? Yeah, cedar decks. I, my, I tell people you better plan on at least every other year. And based on if you use Penafin or something really cool like that, I still think you're going to be doing that. The question is what is the look that you want? So there's so many cool oils, especially designed for uh, woods today. But cedar's in the softwood family. So keep in mind that that's going to have more maintenance on it. Now, I should have uh, stained, restained my deck because I use Penafin. Yeah. It had to be at least three summers ago. Yeah. How does it look? It, it it should have been done, like yeah. you said, a year, every yeah, year and a half. I just don't, yeah, it is. It's a yeah. two-year thing in a minimum to keep the look that you want and to keep it looking beautiful. Next time, it's going to be Zuri. Yeah, okay. That's, that's next time. Good for you. Don't have to do that. Barry, it is always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for all the, the good help here. Uh, cont- I'm back in two weeks. Oh, you are? That's yeah, good to know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, we'll look forward to that. Yeah, on the seventeenth, we'll, we'll keep the coffee going on there. I back love there. that, sir. Right. Thank you. Thanks very much, Barry Strands. And uh, again, if you want to get in touch with Linda's Construction uh, for any particular reason, roofing, we talked about it, siding, whatever it is, the gutters, one eight hundred Leafguard. Stay tuned. Next, it's going to be the Real Estate Show here on eight three zero WCCO. Current temperature thirty seven degrees.